7.06 on CJAD 800. Welcome to today's Entrepreneur, presented by Fuller Landau, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. My name is Dan Delmar, along with Josh Miller of Fuller Landau. How's it going, Josh? Excellent, Dan. Great. And uh, any time we can incorporate booze into the show is probably going to be a good time. And uh, this evening, we'd like to wel- welcome uh, Charles Crawford to the program. Charles is with uh, Domain Pinnacle. Charles, welcome to today's Entrepreneur. Thank you very much. So uh, obviously, we're talking about booze tonight. I've I've actually uh, had the, the ice cider a while ago. Tell us about Domain Pinnacle and about uh, the ice cider, about some of the other products that you make. Well, we're a producer of, obviously, our main product that we're known for is ice cider. We started in 2000, and we're the leading producer of ice cider. Uh, which is a category that's grown a lot over the last decade. And over the last few years, we've expanded our product line. So we're not just doing ciders. We're also doing liqueurs and spirits. We have a uh, range of uh, maple liqueurs called Cour des Bois. And our most recent product, which is award-winning, uh, is a gin from made with herbs from northern Quebec called Ungava Gin. So we have a range of products all made here that we sell at the SIQ, obviously, and we sell internationally in about 60 countries. Now, you're being modest, but I've heard of this gin, and I've heard the buzz surrounding this gin. Tell me, tell me a little bit more about it and, and how it's had accolades uh, worldwide. Well, in March, we won at the World Spirits Award the, the top gin, so world's best gin. We've won a number of other awards at uh, spirits competitions, so we're, we're pretty proud of that. Uh, the product's been you know, about five years in development. It seems like it's a, it's a recent thing, and there's, it, it is fairly recent, but uh, we spent a lot of time doing research, finding the right mix of... Uh, of botanicals, plants that we would use, and they're all plants that come from the northern part of Quebec, the Ungava region. They're really wild, indigenous herbs that are hand-harvested in a short three-week season that we use as the base, and Nordic juniper is the main one, but then we have things like cloudberry, Labrador tea, and others that kind of create this unique flavor, and obviously a unique color, which is yellow, obviously, as you can see. Uh, the listeners can see it very well, and we'll have to, you know, we'll have to try and concentrate on the conversation as we have the bottles in front of us. Now, I know we're talking about one of the latest products, but let's go back to the beginning, Charles. How did you get into, or how did you start Domain Pinnacle? Where did it all begin? Well, it's it's probably a little different from most of the business starts, startups you hear about. Uh, we originally were looking to buy a house in the country, in the eastern townships. Uh, my mother's family is from that area. You know, I used to spend a lot of time in that area. We used to ski at Jay Peak. So we knew the area, and we were looking to buy a property. Uh, and then one day when we were we were looking for quite a while, my wife and I, and uh, you know we stumbled upon this 430-acre apple farm with a spectacular view of the Green Mountains. We're right near the Vermont border, and we said, "Wow!" We had you know the coup de cœur, the real just the lightning bolt. Said this, we got to have this place. The only thing, it was a huge apple farm. So what do we do with it? And we spent quite a bit of time thinking about it. And after a lot of research, a lot of thinking, we said we came up with the idea to do cider, but specifically ice cider. And we bought the property with the intent to do this. Originally, it was a part-time thing, and it eventually grew into a, a full-time thing, and we, we ended up moving to the farm and living there full-time. Were you in this business to begin with? I mean, where was your background? I, people have asked me that question often, do you know about apple farming or about farming? The answer is no, although my mother grew up in Granby, and they have an apple farm, and I used to go there and pick apples, and there is I have fond memories of that, So, but I wasn't an expert in any way on apple farming nor on the wine and spirits business or cider business. Uh, my background is really a marketing background, but I felt that I could bring in those expertise and skills and that my, my background in marketing and also developing markets internationally could serve me well in building the business. Are you an analytical type person or you by gut? I mean, when you when you were taking this over, did you think about it? Did you prepare? Did you say, you know what, this is just something missing in the market. I'm just going to run with it. 
Well, uh, yeah, a bit of both. I think uh, I, I, I'm analytical, and I spent a lot of time analyzing it. My wife, Susan, and I, before we bought it, we said, well, this is a big move. It's not just buying a property. It's also launching ourselves into a new venture. Um, so, yeah, we did a fair amount of analysis on that. But on the other hand, there's also, yeah, I think you need a vision and a, and a very clear vision. I had a long-term vision that this business and Ice Cider specifically could become something that have appeal here, but also have appeal in other parts of the world. And when we started, you know, one of the things we did, you know, I didn't, since I didn't know the industry, which is what you mentioned before, I brought, I think, eight people around the table who were experts and people that I knew, acquaintances, friends, friends of friends, people that were in the, in, in the spirits and wine and beer business and distribution. And we really spent a lot of time talking about, you know, the products that, that were out there, other types of products. And that's from that idea, I really narrowed it down to focusing on ice cider. So the strategy was very clear from the beginning. It did take a fair amount of analysis of the market, the potential, but it took it also a leap of faith because the market did not exist. We had to kind of say, hey, we're going to have to build this category. Ice Cider was really a nascent category at the time. Did Were you working at the time? I mean, did you quit your job and go into this right away? Well, when we started, we bought the uh, purchased the property in 2000, uh, and we started part-time. We were doing you know a few hundred cases a year in the beginning. It was really a, a hobby business, but I had in the back of my mind the idea that it could be and we did that it could become uh, you know, not just a business, but also a lifestyle thing. Uh, so in 2000, we started. In 2002, I said to my wife, and she was entirely convinced at the time, I said, why don't we just sell our house in the city, use that money, build up, help it to grow in, you know, inventory so we can grow the business, and just move out there full time and put the kids in the local school. So that was kind of... Uh, you weren't yeah. over drinking your product at the time, right? No. <laughs> no. Well, I was going to say, it sounds like a crazy plan. Uh, did, did anyone in your entourage, whether it's business, mem- uh, business acquaintances or family members, say, whoa, hang on, Charles, this sounds crazy? Yeah, I'd say about half the people said you're crazy, and half the people were kind of secretly jealous or overtly <laughs> jealous that we were kind of moving out to the country and living this kind of dream. But it did take a, a, a leap of faith because, as I said, the category for Ice Cider, we weren't the first, but we were really the first to popularize it. It was almost non-existent. We started selling the SAQ in 2002. The, you know, a couple hundred thousand in total revenue for the whole year for the whole category, the whole the whole market, and it's grown into millions. But we had to see that potential. So yes, there was. Uh, as one of my friends, who's an experienced guy from France, said, "C'était pas évident." No, <laughs> clearly. And and you know, we we've seen a, lo- a number of trailblazers on the show, entrepreneurs, uh, and you're talking about your your analytical side. I would assume that, given the product that wasn't readily available out there. You had to do a lot of education. I mean, the, po- the population, the people had to know that this product is is new and it's it's bold and it's and it's tasty. Um, how do, how did you deal with that process of getting the knowledge to the people? Right. Well, the way we market or promote or uh, the product has evolved over time. In the beginning, we really were just promoting the category. We were the really the only one that was really present. We were trying to say, what is ice cider? How do I serve it? It's an alternative to what? So we compared it to Sauternes, for, you know, we compared it to Muscat's ice wines, we compared it to ports, and how, getting people in the habit of trying it with different foods that and replacing something that they might have otherwise been purchasing with something that was local. So the, it was really an education process at the beginning. 
as well as a lot of getting people to try the product because it's a product that really works. The people love the love the taste, and I've seen this internationally across cultures. It's a product that people just love, and it's got a lot of awards and garnered a lot of sort of accolades from wine writers and wine competitions. So it was really it evolved from uh, you know a lot of education to more traditional marketing and brand awareness as, a, as the market grew. But in the beginning, it was grassroots. And you're talking local market, so clearly the SAQ has to play a major role. What was the beginnings of the SAQ with your business? Well, the SAQ, we, we, when we moved, part of the reason to move in 2002 was we had this potential listing with the SAQ. And I said, here's the, here's the, the, the basis of potentially growing the business. So, uh, so the SAQ remains you know, our biggest customer, uh, although now we're selling across Canada in about 42 states in the U.S. and I think about over 60 countries. So we kind of built from that base and our, our strategy for all the brands remains the same. Build a strong local market, prove the success here, and then use that to kind of develop internationally. And I think, you know, from, from your standpoint, there's a lot of marketing that goes into play, certainly from an education side, and then from a distribution and sponsorship and all that. And when we come back from the break, I think marketing will be an interesting topic to explore. Charles Crawford joins us of Domain Pinnacle here on Today's Entrepreneur at 7.15. Coming up to 7.20 on Today's Entrepreneur, inspiring stories from outstanding business people, Dan Delmar and Josh Miller of Fuller Landau with you. And our guest this evening is Charles Crawford of Domain Pinnacle, uh, a uh, Eastern Townships based, uh, they, I mean, they make ice wine on Gava Gin. Uh, we may or may not have sampled some of uh, the, uh, the Coureur de Bois, which is, uh, I guess, Charles, a, a maple uh, whiskey? Yeah, it's, a, it's actually a range of maple-based products. We have a maple cider, we have a maple cream liqueur, and, and we have a maple whiskey liqueur. So it's three brands, three products within the, in the family of Coeur de Bois brands. Excellent. Now, I, I've, I go to some, a lot of wine events here and there, and I, I see your product displayed prominently at so many of them. I'm assuming that, that those trade shows, the, those wine events, uh, figures prominently in your marketing strategy. Yeah, it's, uh, well, it's absolutely key, both uh, at the level of the customer, the end consumer. So there's events that we do that are targeted consumer, Fête des Vendanges, uh, those sorts of events that are consumer events, people, customer events come and try. But there's also trade stuff. There's, there's stuff for our international distributors. There's stuff for SAQ staff. So getting both, uh, understanding the products, how to serve them, how to use them, and try them, most importantly, is absolutely key. Has there been certain certain type of marketing that has worked better than other types or other styles for you? Well, I think it's a combination of a bunch of a lot of things that have made it work. The for us, the packaging in when you're in packaged goods, the packaging is very important. So developing packaging, proper communication around that, and branding has been that's sort of the essence of it. I guess um, part of your background certainly helped in that regard. Yeah, so I started my background in consumer packaged goods marketing. So I kind of came back to what I started with my first love, my first. Uh, my first part of my career. Um, so the, the packaging is important, but the, the, the other things that are very important is getting people to try the product. The sampling we talked about in events, in-store sampling is also very important. And then uh, communicating, uh, we sponsor events, we do uh, advertising and print, and, and the advertising evolved over time. In the beginning, it was really more print-oriented. Now it's become more broadcast and broader media as the brands evolved. When you first started out, you said you had assembled some people together in a room to get their ideas which I guess we call, can, can be focus groups. Do right. you still do that today? Do you find that an effective way? I to totally, I totally do. I believe on three levels. One is more on an advisory level from the business point of view. So we have, 
you know, an advisory board and people I talk to on a regular basis who come from the industry or have, you know, experiences that they can share with me on a business point of view. I talk to people in the trade. So when we do, and people that are doing, for example, the gin, we did lots and lots of focus groups with consumers, regular consumers of gin saying, why do they buy it? What do they like? What don't they like? What do they like about our product? But also people that are influencers like the bartenders, the mixologists, we did focus groups with them as well. So there's really three different levels. And I think that's a critical thing in building a business and making the right kind of decisions. Difficult to assemble these people? Like you have trouble finding them, or do you hand? Not in our business. People are no, pretty. They, they people want to. Uh, people are. You know, pretty Anytime available. you need someone for a focus group, mm -hmm. I'm here, Charles. But it's also people that are passionate about. If, for example, gin drinkers like their gin, have a or have a, the brands that they tried and trust, and they're interested. Uh, so there's, it's not that hard, and it's really not that expensive. And when we come back, I think there's other areas that we can explore in marketing. I mean, checking out your competition, certainly dealing with social media, as you want to get to all the age groups of, uh, of society. Charles Crawford of Domain Pinnacle, our guest this evening on Today's Entrepreneur is 7.23. And the Josh, we're back with Charles Crawford of Domain Pinnacle talking about uh, the wine business and marketing and uh, much more. And while, you know, I'm going against every fiber of my being while having a drink while working, uh, we'll continue the conversation and marketing. Now, marketing is also about, you know, is about social media. Certainly people today, you know, you didn't have social media or certainly weren't into it when you first started in 2000. That has developed. You can certainly reach a, a greater number of people or a variety of people. Are you using social media? Do you find it's effective? Uh, certainly from a brand awareness standpoint, I would think so. Well, absolutely. We we have built, you know, all the different levels of social media. Our website's the base, but we have our active uh, on Facebook and Twitter on all, with all our brands and uh so that's a that's a core part of our business, but not just for the consumers, but it's really we found it's very important for the opinion leaders. So people that are really into wines or into spirits, those are the people that find out about products, that create the buzz, that then talk about them. So there's a snowball effect that happens. And uh, and sometimes in the case of Ungava Gin, we were talking about how it's got a real buzz about it. We haven't done a lot of promotion, but it's a lot of online stuff and uh, people trying it, key opinion leaders leading bartenders, that sort of thing. And we won a couple awards and that kind of got people interested. So the, the thing has its uh, life of its own sometimes. Now, social media does require a lot of effort and attention and content. Do you maintain that in-house? Is that something that you feel is has become a burden or that's something that's an, it's a really something that you feel is necessary and have tasked, tasked uh, you know, one, two or whoever to deal with it? Well, some of the tech backend side of it, we work with outside uh, outside resources and agencies, but the content we do all in-house. So everything, whether it's from a PR point of view, from a, what we're going to post on the Facebook page for a specific brand or the company Facebook page, and when we do outbound emails, we have a pretty big list of people with interests. Uh, that's all determined in-house, and we, uh, we want to maintain a good control of that because that's uh, an essential part of our business, at least. And I would think also keeping tabs on your competition to see what they're doing is important. So how closely are you monitoring them, tasting their product, et cetera? Well, we do, we we're very, work a lot on the tasting and the taste profile. The, the marketing and the branding is very important, but at the end of the day, the marketing and the packaging will get people to buy the first bottle. So we're very, very conscious of making sure the quality is there and that the taste fits what consumers are interested in and really works with them. So that's very important uh, against our product, but also against the comp main competitive products. There must be an association, I guess, of whether it's wine producers, not necessarily ice cider, that you can also collaborate with. Have, have they been a good resource? 
Well, sure, there is actually a, an association for ice cider, which is where you know we think by banding together we can help promote and build the category internationally. And we also have an association for uh, our distilled products for micro distillers, so craft distillers in Quebec. Mm-hmm. We're five at this point, but we're hoping by working together we'll be able to build that that industry, just like the the wine making and the cider making business has grown. A, quite a lot over the last couple decades. And you don't feel threatened by dealing with the, the similar, your competition within the association? Not really. I think our, our you know, small producers, uh, we have common goals. We're looking at, you know, I think we have to look at it. How can we build the category? How can we build interest in local products? That's kind of the, the pro- approach I have. I don't really look at it as competitive, as more cooperative and see much more positives than negatives. No, and I, th- I think that's certainly from entrepreneurs, as successful entrepreneurs we, we've seen and listened to, it's all about if you if you have the right idea and you can execute properly, well, then the collaboration can only help because it'll help you expand your ideas. And I think when we come back, Dan, I mean, there's so many other things that are interesting to talk about, not only the financing, how do you get started uh, and, and what, what industries or what sectors or what agencies can help out, but also it's all about people. Somebody's got to be the taste tester. Somebody's got to make that, that, that ice cider and that, that gin. So that'll be interesting to discuss. Charles Crawford, our guest this evening on Today's Entrepreneur from Domain Pinnacle at 7.30. 7.35, welcome back to Today's Entrepreneur presented by Fuller Landau, a program about the entrepreneurial spirit that drives Quebec business. Dan Delmar along with Fuller Landau's Josh Miller with you and our guest this evening from Domain Pinnacle is Charles Crawford, and we're talking about uh, this emerging Quebec business based in the Eastern Townships, exports uh, ice wine and various liquors, uh, including this Ungava Gin, which is which is now getting a, a claim worldwide, which is now, I guess, prompting Charles to, uh, to I guess, look at other markets around the world. And it, has that product been been the one to sort of to sort of uh, uh, I guess facilitate those uh, those exports worldwide, or or is is the ice wine uh, a big a big well, hit abroad as well? The well, the ice cider was really our product that we built internationally, and uh, we did that sort of very early on. It was part of the strategy. Mm-hmm. I had the vision that this is a product that could be world class and uh, and can compete internationally. So we did that. We built our market across Canada in the U.S. And uh, we, for the overseas market, we decided to find a partner, and we found a partner in a cognac company called Camus Cognac, which is a fifth-generation uh, family-owned cognac company. It's, a, it's actually their 150th anniversary. They were f- mm. founded in 1863. Uh, but they're the largest independent family-owned company, and they felt that they loved the product. They thought it was complementary to their, to their products. So they help us in distributing in Europe and Asia primarily. So we're, with, a, with the Ice Cider, we're in over 60 countries. And then when we decided to launch the Ungavagin, for example, it was the same, a lot of the same distribution channels, the so same importers. So we're still shipping to Cognac and they're reship distributing to customers in Singapore, customers in Germany, in Iceland, uh, in, in South America, all over the world, actually. So it's uh, w- one of the reasons to expand our product line and to find complementary premium drinks was because we had built this distribution network and by going out and talking to the same customers, we offer them, you know, other products. Was it difficult to find this company in Cognac? Was it, you know, did you did you date before you got married? Uh, what was the process to make sure that you guys could really work well together? Well, I, th- I think we went into it with the view that this would be a long term uh, a long term uh, relationship, and we started that way by you know starting in a couple markets, testing the Pinnacle Ice Cider to see how it would react, how it would sell, and it did well. And we expanded it to a few others. And that was about over about a year and a half till we decided, hey, let's do this on a on a more permanent, long term basis, which we did. 
we started with a five-year contract, which we've renewed. And then we, when we launched on GAVA, we were added that product in. And it was, again, a hole in their portfolio and a product they fell in love with, too, and a brand they fell in love with. So it was a, kind of a thing that evolved over time, but it's really built on a, a long-term uh, relationship of trust. But you stay involved as far as the distribution network and the countries you go to adjust, I guess, your, your labeling accordingly a little bit. Yeah, there's there are quite a few different uh, you know regulatory things when it comes to alcoholic beverages in terms of labeling, in terms of mandatory requirements you have to write on it, who the importer is, and so on. So we have an international label uh, f- that we use, but in a lot of cases they will take it and they will do over labels for certain markets. Some markets not, some markets yes, but they handle a lot of the compliance and language issues that happen. So selling to Russia, you have to have a a certificate testing the liquid before you ship it in in Russian. So these are things that are, you know, complicated to do, but they're already dealing with them. So that facilitates our entry into a lot of markets where we otherwise would not be. No, certainly. I mean, with, as you say, with all the barriers to entry in the international markets, this is a great way just to to get in and and understand and, and get your product out there with fewer headaches than what otherwise could have been. Yeah, exactly. And you know, when you're starting out as a small entrepreneur, what you don't have is the resources. So you need to partner with people that bring those those resources to you. In our case, the international distribution. But I think it's true if you look at a lot of different areas of starting a business, finding areas that you need complementary skills. You can do that not necessarily with your internal people, but by building partnerships and alliances. Speaking of resources, certainly when you when you started this business and you had to buy the property and uh, you know you you bought the farm so to speak, uh, and you you had the equipment to buy. Was it difficult from a financing standpoint? What was your experience with that? Well, we uh, we put a business plan together at the beginning, so we had a clear idea. It wasn't just purchasing the property and then let's see what we do with it after. We did all the analysis prior to making the purchase, so we did finance it with our bank for uh, you know the equipment in the building. We started by building the cidery and getting the basic bottling equipment and tanks and so on. So that was uh, finance, traditional financing with the bank. But in the case it was an agricultural business, we also had loan guarantees from Finance Agricole, which is part of the MAPAC, uh, Quebec Agriculture uh, Ministry. So that allowed us to kind of uh, finance most or all, the majority of our sort of capex that we had up front. And then we invested and we grew it slowly with lines of credit and so on over the years. Was it easy? I mean, certainly a new business to start up to begin with is not easy. As you say, the Financiera Agricole helped out. Were the bankers on side? I mean, was it easy to talk to them, to explain your business, or you had to educate them too? Well, I think it's it's a lot of the same lessons come from our relationship with Camus. We also built a long-term relationship with the bank. In our case, it was BMO, and we've worked with them ever since. From the very beginning, when we were looking at this semi-abandoned apple farm to today, where we're selling, uh, selling the product internationally. So we've built a long-term relationship. We've kept them in the loop, been transparent with them, and we've had, you know, times when cash was tougher and we've had you know had to have lines of ex- ex- credit extended or different things uh, there was a strike at the SAQ in 2004 which wasn't uh, wasn't a nice period three months totally out of the out of left field so there are unexpected things but we've had a good relationship with the bank we've been transparent and they've helped us along but you know within the limits of what they can do so we've had to be creative sometimes and uh, and figure out other ways to do things. You mentioned the the strike of 2004 SAQ and, you know, I think of recession. Are there are there times where it's been that much more difficult financially? And how did you deal with it? Or what did you learn? Or what did you change in your business as a result? Well, there's always, I think in any business, there's, there's ups and downs. You have 
products that do what better. You have market conditions that change. You have the financial recession. You had the, uh, you know, you had the SAQ strike. So I think it's just a question of adapting and, uh, you know, being flexible and realizing sometimes you've got to tighten your belt and sometimes uh, you can only do certain things a little later than you expected. So it's a question of timing things. We tried to build brands and, and grow them, but we have to manage the portfolio of what's what we're starting up, what we have to invest and what we have already on the market. It's a seasonal business, so I would imagine cash flow, uh, certainly at the beginning, I mean, maybe today it's it's a little different, I don't know, but cash flow when you're when you're up and down with the seasons and the harvest and the picking and it, and it takes you know a couple of years from the time that you're you're growing to the to a product coming out you have to learn probably quite a bit from a cash flow standpoint yeah that's for sure i think there's two things that are unique in our business one is that for the ice cider it's about two years from picking to putting the bottles we support all that inventory for two years and the bank really supports a minority of that you know it's, mm-hmm. it's inventory it's work in process inventory so we have to finance that with our own resources so that's a challenge it's not like a normal production business and secondly what you mentioned it's very heavily weighted to the last three months of the year in terms of sales so you know that's it, it has its ups and downs in the year so we have to have to manage that very very carefully has there anything you know I, I'm trying to think and I'm staring at the bottles going you must have had so many trials and errors has there anything that's kind of gone wrong that you've learned from and said kind of made something great out of that failure well I think we're trying to learn from all you know we made a lot of you know there's a lot of successes but we made a lot of mistakes along the way and errors and how we package or how we market or production problems and so on but I think what we're trying to do is con- continuous improvement and learn from them Fortunately, none of the errors have been have been fatal, catastrophic. Uh, catastrophic. Uh, but I think uh, we also learn. We try to try to learn not just individually, but as an organization, and to be better and uh, communicate internally and say, well, let's learn from what we did in the past. Let's we're launching this product. Let's not make that same mistake. Let's take the extra time to solve that problem that turned out to be uh, to be an issue. And certainly, working with the team around you, bouncing ideas off of each other, that's clearly a way to go. Well, in a small business, we work very collaboratively. We meet uh, weekly on things, on new products. We meet on production and operational issues as well. And uh, everyone's involved in a lot of things. They're not just you know, pigeonholed to their area. They they get involved and they understand the overall vision of the company. They they like the products. They find it interesting. They 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 enjoy it. They share the sort of the passion and the desire for success. So that makes it easy. But we have to work together on a weekly basis. Charles Crawford joins us of Domain Pinnacle here on Today's Entrepreneur. And uh, Josh, coming after the break, we're going to talk uh, taxes. Taxes with uh, Nick Moretis, who's going to join us. Excellent. 749, welcome back to Today's Entrepreneur, presented by Fuller Landau. Uh, inspiring stories from outstanding business people, Dan Delmar and uh, Fuller Landau's Josh Miller with you. Our guests this evening, Charles Crawford of Domain Pinnacle. And uh, we bring into the conversation Nick Moretis, tax partner at Fuller Landau. And, uh, well, I guess we're talking taxes. We are. And, and you know, as we approach the end of the calendar year, and there's a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of companies that have December year ends, uh, I think there's a number of areas that, 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 entrepreneurs should be aware of if they're not already aware of and some that's maybe a little bit new so nick uh, kind of turned the table towards you and maybe you can start off with something new that maybe not a few not many people have heard about yet well this was very new because we were having a lunch discussion and we uh, quite a few of us missed this um quebec came out very quietly with an information bulletin back in october where uh, they're going to be giving uh, homeowners a tax credit if you, they take uh, renovations to their homes or their cottages um, that would give them uh, environmental protection or improve the environmental protection or the, uh, the, the, it's called the eco-renov 
tax credit. Um, it's good from now up until November 1st of 2014 that you finish the work and pay for the work. Um, so good for when you file your 2013 tax return? Uh, it will be whenever you do it. So if you do it between now and December 31st, uh, it would be eligible for the tax credit. But November 1st, 2014 is the deadline, and you have to do eco-friendly renovation work on your house or cottage. You're, you're basically giving you 20% of your cost. The first $2,500, is, is, uh, is, there's no refund. But anything over the first 2500 you get 20% up to $10,000. So you got to spend 52500 to get the maximum credit of 10000 per dwelling. So presumably if you have a house and cottage, you can multiply that by two. One geothermal system, and you got your halfway there. Well, this is it. Some of the stuff they've given as examples, uh, again, this is still very, very recent, is if you um, incur costs to insulate your roof, exterior walls, that would qualify. If you take costs to seal a waterproofing your house or the entire structure in terms of air, that would qualify. Replacing doors and windows with qualified products, Energy Star products, that would qualify. Upgrading or replacing heating that uh, relies on propane, natural gas, or wood would also qualify. So these are some of the examples. So if you were, if you were planning to do that anyway, you got this window till November 1st, 2014 to do it and pay for it to get these credits. And maybe to do it in 2013 because who knows where we're going in 2014. Absolutely, absolutely, if you were planning to do that. Now what about from a, from a, a corporate standpoint? Is there any few that stand out, uh, at least off the top of your head? Well, th this is the typical season. Many companies have December 31 year ends. It's a, it's a nice uh, end of year and end of uh, fiscal periods. The big decision owners will be looking at is, uh, is dividends or salary mix uh, as, we, as we go along based upon the results of, their, of, their, of the, the current fiscal year. Right now, there's, um, for those with the, who enjoy the small business deduction, dividends still seem to be giving you the best after-tax impact as a business owner. That's where we seem to be leaning. But the differences are so small. It's usually under 1% between choosing a salary or dividend that a lot of other factors kick in so that we have to look at income splitting, uh, whether you're, you're maximizing RSPs or, or your individual pension plans for those who have it, etc. Also, for any business owner, whether you're incorporated or not, uh, it's the timing of when you buy a, an asset. So if you're looking to purchase uh, computers and you're thinking, should I buy it now? Should I do it in, in the new year? Well, if you're buying it now, yes, you're going to have to probably pay for it sooner, but you're getting immediate tax break, tax breaks that you can use to reduce your taxes in your current fiscal year. Whereas if you buy it in January, you really don't get to use them until for uh, uh, another period of time. And if you're looking to stock your corporate bar, look to demand pinnacles uh, so you can get that expense absolutely. in before now, the now year end. Absolutely. Now is the time. That's right. For your, especially if you're doing your Christmas for your uh, clients, etc. I had a question for you. You talked about a lot of companies have their year end in December, as we do. Yeah. And uh, it's been suggested on a couple of occasions that, you know, the professionals are all loaded down at the end of the year and you're focusing on personal planning. Is it, do you recommend different year ends for different kinds of companies or businesses or? Uh, th there's a tax planning side, which we could look at. Uh, but a lot of times I would look at the, what's your business cycle? Right. What you may not want is a year end at your top business cycle when you're, you're, you're hot and heavy, your accounting staff, your, all the staff involved with working the company are already over their heads, you may want to choose a, another period of time. The other thing is if, you're, if uh, you know you need financing, you may also be looking to judiciously choose a year-end when you look best, mm -hmm. when uh, maybe you just finished earning your profits, you, your inventories are good, your receivables are good. Uh, that would be some of the key factors. So don't let the tax tail wag the corporate dog. Never. 
Uh, Charles Crawford joins us from Domain Pinnacle. We'll have his one piece of advice for today's entrepreneur next. Remaining moments on today's entrepreneur, Nick Moraitis and Charles Crawford are here. Nick, uh, tax expert at Foyle Landau. Charles from Domain Pinnacle. And Nick, maybe just a couple of last quick thoughts on year-end planning. I'll just run through some basics. For anyone looking to uh, deduct the medical costs or donation costs, uh, child care costs for 2013, make sure you pay it before December 31 because uh, otherwise the expenses are uh, no good. For those of you who've got capital gains on your stock market per trades because it's been a good year, you got till about maybe December 23 or 24, check with your uh, financial advisors to sell your losers so you can reduce your tax bill. Um, that's something to plan for. Uh, and for anyone who is uh, turned 71 and is still working, because we might still be working, and you're earning a salary, you may want to consider doubling up on your RSP co uh, uh, contribution this year, because you won't be allowed to do an RSP next year when uh, when you when it comes in. Excellent. Thanks very much, Nick. And as we approach the last minute or two of the show, we're going to turn to Charles uh, and ask him, what would your one piece of advice be to today's entrepreneur? Well, I think my one piece of advice to any entrepreneur is have a clear vision of where you're going. I think in our when we started, it was we think we can build this ice cider business and uh, it's we can sell locally and grow internationally. But the vision expanded uh, to have complementary products. Our vision is to try to create products that are using authentic, natural, local ingredients, sell them and market them here build the brand here and then sell it internationally. So the, the vision is very simple, but it sets a clear direction. Everyone in the company understands it. We work in unison because of it. And we're always looking towards that. We're not uh, questioning where we're going. And it needs to be a clear and a simple vision. I think that's great. And Dan, the, the couple of takeaways I get from, from this show, and certainly one is is that vision and certainly making sure that everybody around you is aware of it. But the very subtle point that, he, that Charles has made throughout is about communication, revolves around communication. He said it when he was talking about his financial partners, speak to them, keep them in the loop. He referred to it when he's talking about his team around them, keep them in the loop. He's referring to it when he's doing his marketing and research and focus groups, making sure that the proper and planned communication is key. And not once did I talk about the business plan thought that he said at the beginning that we usually do, <laughs> but, but that's part of the communication as well. Thanks, Josh. Thanks to Charles Crawford of Domain Pinnacle, Nick Moraitis of Fuller Landau. We'll see you back here next week for a, a guest, another edition of Today's Entrepreneur.